Okay, hello, hello, friends. It's Thursday, May 18th, and uh, we've got a Chapo coming at you. Uh, today is an episode where we'll be talking about video games, uh, the people who play them, and uh, more importantly, the people who create them. So that's just my way of introducing our guest for today from Obsidian Entertainment, the gaming wizard behind the new, the new title Pentiment and the classic Fallout New Vegas. It's Josh Sawyer. Josh, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. Uh, Josh, it's perfect timing uh, that we uh, wanted to have you on the show because I, you, you just posted today, uh, your game Pentiment is getting a lot of accolades, people are loving it, but it got the true, the true trophy, the Rod Dreher seal of approval. <laughs> That's true. Very exciting. He said he wants to buy Xbox just to play your game. Wow, what a thrill. <laughs> I can't wait to hear his opinion of it. I mean, the Xbox, Microsoft would have, um, they declared themselves as losing the console wars just a week too soon. Yep, if, they, if they had come out there and said, Rod Dreher is Team Xbox, well, I, you know, short your Sony stock. That's all I'll say. <laughs> I've heard that uh, Rod is going to play it. Uh, he's going to play Pentiment on Twitch with a vibrating butt plug in. <laughs> and every time that Martin Luther's name is mentioned, it just goes off. Fantastic. I mean, that's the great thing about video games. They give you something to do when you don't have the wife and kids around. <laughs> <laughs> you, there, you think there's something pathetic about being in Hungary. No one you know is there except for uh, like mid-20s uh, Orban staffers who are telling you about evil episodes of Blue's Clues they've seen. <laughs> And you're a 60-year-old man trying to figure out the difference between an Xbox Series X and Xbox One's Series S, uh, all their confusing branding decisions. I think it's all downhill from here. Well, uh, actually, uh, we, just a bit of other video game news before we get into Pentiment. Uh, Matt, you and Chris uh, did your EU stream last night, and I'd just like to check in. Um, did the cancer of the Protestant Reformation, was that fully excised from Europe after Matt got to sort of a role play as a Catholic monarch? Well, no, we would have had to start like in the 1500s for that. I mean, <laughs> I want to do I do want to do a game starting as Charles V, kill Martin Luther at Worms, convince <laughs> the Pope to allow Henry VIII to get divorced and like see if I can actually stamp it out. But so we started this one at 1619. So like right at the beginning of the 30 years war, and we went till about 1658. Uh, and uh, I, me as Ferdinand II, and then later third after Ferdinand died, we uh, kicked the shit out of the German Protestants, uh, took re-Catholicized a huge chunk of the former uh, uh, Protestant areas, including uh, Saxony, uh, which means that Wittenberg itself was back in the bosom of the one true church, which I was very proud of. Uh, then we kicked the shit out of the Ottomans so hard that we actually retook Jerusalem. <laughs> uh, then we took a if chunk you will of it, northern, it is no dream. Yep. And then we took a chunk of northern Switzerland, including G uh, John Calvin's Geneva itself. <laughs> and now next time we play, we're on. We're going to be able to us and Spain are going to want to punch the shit out of France. With the long-term goal of destroying England, of course. Uh, Josh, do you play any of the uh, the map-based games? Are you a fan of those? Um, no, I'm I'm a I'm a fan of observing people's playthroughs, but I I do not play them myself. That's what I did, by the way. I just <laughs> yeah. watched these guys do it. They would well, be Matt, like, "Hey, do you want to invade uh, Transylvania?" And I'm like, "Yeah, sure, sure. invade Transylvania." Of course. The whole time well, they're Matt like, "Click, click, 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 click," and I'm like, "What the fuck is any of this?" 
<laughs> Matt, I, well, I loved I, I loved watching the stream because it really was like Matt Christman monarch because you had your sort of courtiers and, and viziers and you were just telling them what to do as you quaffed ale out of a flagon. Yep. And they did all the actual work. It was awesome. <laughs> we found the great the only good use for our listeners is court eunuchs. Yes. <laughs> That's all they've ever been meant to be. I well, mean, that is honestly true. Like a lot of this, our, our overproduced elites, like in a, in a functioning society would just be killing it, like carrying tablets around and smelling vaguely like urine. Yeah. I, most of our listeners, um, they should not be contacting me. They should be bribing the soup boy. Well, uh, Matt, your, your game did not start in the 1500s, but Josh, your game, Pentiment, does start in the 1500s. I know Matt and Chris got a lot of recommendations to to play this game, which is like, could you just talk a little bit about Pentiment? It's like, uh, how would you describe it? It's like a murder mystery set in like medieval Bavaria. And I'm just wondering, like, how did you come up? Like, where, where was the genesis for the idea behind this game? Yeah, it's um, it's a uh, early modern um, <laughs> murder mystery. It's a it's a adventure role playing game, and uh, yeah, it takes place in. It starts in 1518 in the fictional uh, Bavarian town of Tassing in Kearsaw Abbey, and uh, yeah, you're an artist who is uh, spending the the end the end of his wanderjahre, his sort of journeyman years, working in a dying scriptorium in a, uh, an Abbey, a Benedictine Abbey. And then a murder happens and you get caught up in it. And then you spend the next, not entirely, but you essentially spend the next 25 years trying to not only solve that murder, but a series of other murders and a whole load of other issues that come up. Um, but the idea from it came from, uh, I went to college, got a degree in early modern history. And when I got into the games industry, I wanted to make I wanted to make D&D games and I wanted to make a Fallout game and the other game that I wanted to make was a historical game and nobody else was interested in it. And then <laughs> 20 years passed and I convinced my boss to let me make it. And uh, yeah, that's how it went. Finally solved that murder. Talk about a, talk about a cold case. Yeah. Um, but like, what, what are some of like, the, the influence on this? Because you're, you know, you're talking about an early modern murder mystery set in an abbey you know the name of the rose comes to mind but i'm just wondering like what was the what was some of the research that went into this and like uh like what were some of the ideas that you discovered like researching the game or that you learned in studying early modern period in college that you wanted to communicate in the in the game's medium yeah i mean uh name of the rose was obviously influential just in its overall kind of tone and and um you know, just the, the fundamental idea behind it. But in terms of the stuff that I wanted to communicate, I've always been interested in the early modern period because it is full of so much upheaval. I mean, you can say that that's true of almost any historical period, but, um, you know, print and the rise of print and the dissemination of ideas to ordinary people um, in vernacular languages, which I know you, you spoke about um, in your series on the Hundred Years' War. Like, that was obviously greatly influential, and I think that's very important to understand the impact that that had on not, it wasn't class consciousness at the time, but it, it became the foundation of that, I think. Um, and also, I think a lot of studying micro history really reveals that we're, we're all kind of the same. <laughs> We've always been the same kind of people for centuries and millennia. And a person living in 1518, you know, lives in different material conditions, but they're basically like us. Um, and they're, they're quite varied in their intelligence and their outlook on things. They can form their own ideas. And so trying to dispel some of the ideas of like monolithic cultural swaths, like 
everyone in the church is kind of like this, and all peasantry is kind of like this. Um, <laughs> Catholics drive you know, a car like this. Protestants drive yeah. a car like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, like I just I wanted to just kind of show, um, you know, a, a little a little society that represented all of these things and a lot of diversity within it, diversity of thought and opinion and outlook. And um, yeah, that was kind of the stuff that I wanted to get across. I was uh, very impressed by the well poisoning side mission in, in, in your video game, Josh. No, I'm just kidding. That's, that's not, in the video. <laughs> or maybe it is. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was like, damn, I don't remember that one. Uh, well, I mean like, so this is a, you know, it deals with like a lot of history, but this is this is a murder mystery as well. And I'm just wondering, like, what's it like writing a murder mystery about a time before modern forensics? Because, like, you know, you watch TV; it's just all about uh, DNA and getting the getting the UV light to look at all the fluids and stuff like that. But, like, how did you approach writing a story in which someone went about trying to solve a murder in the 1500s? Um, you know, it it was not. I did not try to make it like a Sherlock Holmes mystery in a, for a few reasons. One. Echo already did that very well with William of Baskerville and Name of the Rose. But um, I actually wanted to I wanted to play with how much ambiguity there really was. Like there weren't there weren't detectives. There was not really forensics. And a big point of the game is that you are put in a position where you're not actually equipped to make a, a very well-informed decision about who the guilty parties are. And that's something that comes up when you wind up accusing people of these murders is that. Uh, unlike a lot of games that deal with murder mysteries, you are never told actually who the killer is. You just kind of have to put someone away and and they die and then people are pissed at you. And maybe it's people that you care about and maybe it's people who you don't give a shit about their opinion, but they're gone and you did it. Um, and you did it without really much evidence at all. It's all very circumstantial or, or it's mostly your opinion. And of course, that's not necessarily the case in in all circumstances. But yeah, the early modern period was not one where there was a lot of hard and fast evidence. And in fact, the whole legal system was just entirely different. Like the structure of it was just fundamentally different. So uh, really, it wasn't about you finding a bunch of clues and piecing together the one true solution. It was about you navigating through this um, community and learning about all these people and their different motivations and then kind of deciding for yourself and maybe it's not even a question of guilt, but who do you want to pay for this? Who do you want to die for this? And that might very well be the person who you don't think is the guilty party. Um, or if you just say like, I have no fucking idea, but I hate this dude. <laughs> They're gone. Um, and so that's, it's kind of trying to put the player in that circumstance, which is very unusual for a game. That's kind of about a murder mystery. In terms of, uh, like writing the plot to this or, or running any of the games you've worked on. I'm, I'm interested in like, if you're writing a, like a screenplay or a comic book or a novel, short story, whatever, it's like you as the writer are essentially God of this universe and, and you create it and like you're in control of every detail of it. And like the, 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 the stranger, the third party who's like communing with your work is put into a universe you've created and they have to kind of uh, metabolize it in their own way. But like in, in creating a game, that's that's plot and character driven how do you as a writer change like how does it change when you, when you, the idea is not to create a universe in which you are the god of it but to put like an unnamed third party a stranger to you essentially in the position of becoming god of a world that you've created for them like what challenges does that present to you as a writer or creator um i think you know one of the big things is that whenever you're sort of saying that you are an agent in the story and you're actually active you're not just kind of clicking through it um there's a, a range of 
like you are playing in a vessel of a character that exists in this time and place. So, for example, you're playing Andreas Mahler, and Andreas is Bavarian. He is, you know, from Nuremberg. He is, well, I guess you'd say he's Franconian, but um, he is um, he is Catholic, and there are certain things about him that are sort of fixed, and then there are other things that are not fixed in terms of his attitude, how he lives his life. Um, and we're saying to the player, we're going to give you a spectrum of choices. Those are not unbounded choices because we can only author so much until the great age of AI comes. But um, until that day comes, like we're giving you a spectrum of choice, and that spectrum of choice is presented to sort of um, give a range of expression that feels true to the authored character while also allowing you to explore the complex, the moral complexity of the world that you're in. Um, in a lot of cases, we ask the player to make choices about whether to speak up or shut up or be deferential, um, be kind, be brutal or rude. And those things have outcomes. Um, and so to a certain extent, we're, we need to create a space uh, for the player, but there's also a range of expression in there. So it's a difficult balancing act. I mean, I've worked in role-playing games for my entire career, and every game is a new chance to kind of look at how much how much expression do we want to give to the player versus the the plot that we want to sort of move forward, if that makes sense. Yeah, you said you mentioned that uh, you always wanted to do sort of D&D style games and that you've been working in, in role playing games your, your whole career. Uh, did you play D&D uh, &D or tabletop role playing games as a kid? And like, if so, what did they teach you about writing and, and, and the, the career that you have now? Yeah, I played them a lot. I mean, I started when I was 10. So that's a long time ago now, 30, 37 years ago. Um, and I still play tabletop role playing games. And I think the big thing is that, you know, at a certain level, D&D is a war game, but, you know, it's a collaborative storytelling thing and not to not to get too highfalutin about it. But, you know, there's a person running the game and then there are the people playing in it and they're making choices and decisions. And when it's fun, you know, like when everyone's having a good time, it does really feel like you're col being collaborative, even if there are moments of antagonism. And I think as a dungeon master, because I usually was the person running the games, you know, I found that as the dungeon master, my players generally had a better time when um, I, you know, allowed them to poke at things and change things and flip the table over um, in the game, so to speak. Um, and then as a player, I also appreciated that when the people running the game would let me kind of do wild shit and like, you know, flip out and not follow the script. And, um, you know, we want to have a satisfying story, but part of it is that we're involved in it. It's not that's what makes it kind of a fun thing is that we're doing our own thing and we have our own stories within the larger story that uh, the DM is sort of constructing and the other players are making as well. So I think that's the thing when I got into D and D, like obviously there's a lot of, there's a lot of stats and spells and shit, but you know, I think the heart of it for me was really that collaborative storytelling environment, which is why Pentiment really, you know, it doesn't have stats, but it still has the, 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 the player as a, a partial author of the story that moves forward. You mentioned uh, like D and D is kind of a collaborative storytelling effort. Um, in your experience working in in the games industry, like just working with a team, like if you work, it works with like big teams, small teams, like in terms of the size of the project, like does, how does that affect the development of a game and the story that you're able to tell? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the more people that are involved, the harder it is to kind of coordinate a vision among a group of people. Um, I mean, there are teams that are very small and have a more or less flat structure. I, you know, there are a lot of especially indie games that work that way, where it's you know one, two, three, four people. Um, and you know, their hierarchies are things that are more ad hoc, like they work out responsibilities among themselves in the, the bigger the teams get, the more generally speaking, there's a top down hierarchy. 
and you need to do a better job of communicating ideas across people. Um, and that's really the most complicated part of it is just bigger teams means more complicated. There's more infrastructure. Uh, the idea that you might have had and shared with three or four people is much more difficult to convey and really get into people's heads when it's, you know, 50 people, 100 people, et cetera. Um, and then there's the practical matter of the finances of it. You know, fewer people care about what happens when a game is made by 13 people for not that much money. When a game is made by hundreds of people and costs well over $100 million, then there's a lot more people kind of um, up above giving scrutiny and giving a shit about uh, what's going into the game and how it's presented. And it becomes, uh, it's more difficult to sort of establish a sense of vision that is, uh, could in any way be construed as artistic <laughs> when so much money is, is riding on it. So, um, you know, just the scale does have an effect on that. And the, the, the term that gets thrown around a lot uh, these days, if you follow video games is like triple a games or like the triple a studios. Cause you just sort of like, define is this essentially the difference between like a big studio feature and an independent movie yeah it's uh it's weird too because it is a very um like what do you, you know what does a person mean when they say triple a you know someone could have said that fall at new vegas was triple a when it came out maybe and that was a team of about 80 ish people um 80 people now might be considered double a which isn't a weird sort of category um i've also heard people use semi-seriously the term quadruple a which really just means the highest end games are now made by teams of up to a thousand people at different studios for hundreds of millions of dollars. And then there are tiers below that, but yeah, there's kind of this big gulf. So I would say that AAA for most people means the biggest games, the Elden rings, the gods of war, things like that. And then there's like indie games and people might sort of mentally think of Pentiment as an indie game, even though it's not, it's made by a fairly large studio. And then there's this big gulf in between them that I think people are still, even within the industry are figuring out, which is like double a, um, when the outer worlds, which obsidian also made came out, it was considered a double a, uh, sort of game, but it's in sort of a weird space because yeah, it doesn't have the super high production value of a huge game, but it's also clearly not an indie game. Um, and so audience expectations are very strange because it looks kind of like it's a high-end game, but the fidelity is not quite there. The scope is not quite there. Uh, so yeah, it's gotten weird. Like over time, 10 years ago, the difference between AAA and indie seemed pretty clear and there wasn't a AA category. It was like either you're funded for many millions of dollars making games or you're making them for less than a million dollars. And now the spectrum is enormous and very weird. Uh, Felix, what would you say is like, uh, what would you say like characterizes like the, the is, is there sort of a template now for like a triple A game in terms of like what people expect and the gameplay or some of the like issues? Because I hear a lot of people complaining about triple A games. Like Felix, what are some of the, the sort of features of like these triple A games that people talk about? Well, I mean, it really depends on the genre. I wouldn't say there's like one standardized anything for triple A games that goes across genres. But I mean, there are certainly like trends in, uh, you know, genre games that are made by AAA studios. Uh, I, I mean, one general thing that goes outside of genre, I guess, that's hyper current would be that AAA games sort of more as a consequence of like labor practices and answering to shareholders seem to be released more and more unfinished now. They seem to just not fully be in a working state when they're released and uh, 
they're just patched as they go along. That isn't universal for all AAA games, obviously, but it seems to be becoming more and more normal in the last like five years. But I mean, going back to the original question, I guess, uh, like uh, a AAA game is more likely to, I don't know, let's say like hold your hand in some ways. Um, oftentimes I would say like use the same like narrative tropes. Like one thing that you always notice in a AAA game from the last few years is like a forced helpless helplessness walking section. People just love that. I don't know who did that first. Lots of that, that in God of War. That is uh, God of War is um there's a lot of there's a lot of uh forced helplessness. You know, whether you like that game or not, you're just going to be pushing that stick sometimes. But um not all AAA games are, you know, just filled with uh tropes like that or totally unfinished but there's certainly a trend in all those things and like like felix when we were talking about this yesterday like you mentioned like i mean you said just now that a lot of what's like a lot of the, a lot of trends in video games are drawn are, are derived from changing labor conditions in video games and josh i'm just wondering like what your perspective is on like that on how the industry has changed in terms of how, how like the the labor that goes into creating a game and the pressures to create the games affect games and like the type of games that are being made these days. Yeah, I would say maybe 15 years ago, you started seeing the trends of increasing outsourcing um, and outsourcing was typically not like codev in the traditional sense. Like there are two American studios that are both developing different things. It was more like there is a place in South Asia that does, that makes art assets for, you know, pennies on the dollar compared to what we would pay American labor or European labor. And so that started, um, the more broadband rose, um, the more viable it was to do stuff like that. Um, remote working actually normalizes the experience of just meeting and talking asynchronously, um, or rather across time zones, I shouldn't say asynchronously, but, um, all of that stuff sort of contributes to this idea of the avenues of production of different parts of development, being able to be outsourced, to wherever it's most advantageous for the people spending the money to do that. Um, I think it's very, very, very common now. Um, it, it was the exception maybe 10 years ago, you'd have a little bit of outsourcing. And now I think it's very common for bigger games to have multiple outsourcing partners dealing with all sorts of things from quality assurance to um, localization. Localization's always typically been that, but um, QA, localization, audio, um, art, animation. Um, you know, in some cases, there are specialized houses that always kind of tend to do that stuff better, like cinematics. Only studios like Blizzard typically have like the the juice to kind of do all their own crazy cinematics. But yeah, it's become a more integrated thing where you'll just have multiple studios around the world essentially doing this stuff. And it's allowed the scale of games to get a lot bigger while the costs have not gone up linearly. Do you feel in the, in the time that like games have gotten bigger and like, yeah, no, the production values from like now, even like six years ago are just inconceivable. Uh, games just seem like such a, a bigger thing than they did at any other time in our lives really. But as, as that, as that trend goes, like, do you feel that there's, I don't know. Do you feel like in general, Games are sort of like there are more guide rails in AAA experiences. Yeah, I would say I would say you're right. I think because the thing is, um, gaming the market for gaming is bigger. That doesn't just mean that the pool of money is bigger. It means that the audience is also bigger. 
and they want to make that audience, you know, the, whatever the investment is, they want to they want to hit as many people as possible. And so you become a little more averse to things that are going to lose. Like there's a lot of talk, like people are fucking obsessed with friction in the first hour of or first two hours of playing a game. Um, because they just don't, they don't want people to return the game, especially if they bought it digitally and they have return yeah. policies. So there's a lot of like, hello, little baby, like come on and play the game <laughs> and we're not gonna like muss your hair. Like you can just come along this way and it's going to be okay. So yeah, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of on the bigger games, there's a huge amount of, uh, concern that goes into sanding off rough, rough edges and making everything very simple and very clear to people so that they get into it and keep playing because the markets are enormous. You know, I mean, again, 10 years ago, you know, it was still big. Gaming was still big, but it was also uh, considered like there's kind of the core audience and then there was a little bit of on the fringe. And now the, the hardcore gamer is really kind of, I would say, in the minority. And there's a huge audience of casual gamers. And so a lot of stuff in AAA kind of has to be designed around the more casual gamer who doesn't have time in their mind to kind of deal with hangups and bullshit and friction and restarting stuff. They just, they don't have a tolerance for it, which is why a game like Elden Ring is so weird because it is completely the opposite of that. Yeah. It's like the, the effect of like a larger audience where, yeah, just the hardcores are in the minority. There's certainly a lot of changes. I don't think they're like all necessarily negative. I mean, the one unambiguous positive is it doesn't seem like there's as many like games where it's, you know, kind of like how crisis was where almost the entire marketed purpose of the game is just to like be a hardware bullying game. Yeah. Like, uh, oh, your, your machine's probably too shitty to handle this. Games have gotten, I, it seems like they run, they run on things better than they did at, 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 at like 10 years ago. But I, w I was thinking about like going ahead a little bit here. I was looking at like your list of your all time favorite games. And I think like the, what you talked about with less friction in the first hour, I think that's probably a reason why like stealth games have died kind of in the last few years. Stealth games, I think more than any other type of game, they if you always if you have things all over the level that are just telling you exactly what to do, then there's pretty much like no point in the game. Like stealth yeah. games more than any other type of action games, like do necessitate some a huge portion of like just the player figuring things out and failing or like uh, different angles to solving the same problem. Yeah. And I would say um, I would say with stealth games, it's uh, the core of especially classic stealth games is that the player has a position from which they can observe behavior and then interact with it and like basically provoke the AI. So that's true of Thief, Splinter Cell, tons of games. But there is a lot of trial and error there. Um, and it sort of requires patience and it requires observation. And that's kind of antithetical to, you know, getting the show going and like and action based stuff. So what we see more of, I think now, are kind of hybrid stealth action games. Um, as much as I love the Hitman series, you know, if you look at something like F Far Cry, where it's like, well, you're stealthy, but you're just butchering people, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> like you, you, and, and so like the fail state means I get to go into, you know, guns out, you know, murder fest. And so it's a different sort of focus where, yeah, if you want to play it stealthy and, and kind of ghost things, you can play it that way. But then there's also a way you can play the game that is really more of just an action based, you know, your fucking... Uh, your matrix and commando 
And so like stealth is merely an instrument to get me close to you, to murder you. Um, so yeah, like, because I, I don't think people really have the patience for that stuff. Um, especially not the mass market, um, which is just more action oriented. Yeah. I, I was excited with the, um, the newer Hitman games that started in 2016. I, Unfortunately, like a lot of those missed sales targets, but I would I would kind of attribute that more to the weird way they were released. They they yeah. first tried something that was episodic and then they they when you're when your company has to release infographics telling people how to buy the game, it's you're in a bad state. I, I do want to touch on a thing you said about Elden Ring that I think is interesting. Um it is like fascinating that like you know, now of all times that this is the most successful FromSoft game. And I would say, like, probably, like, if you're playing it solo without summons, probably the most unforgiving From bosses ever. Like, the, the least generous with openings, um, the hardest to figure out, they kill you the quickest if you're not playing with spirit summons or anything. But I think Elden Ring solves that problem of friction and, uh, you know, how, how quickly players will give up or just simply don't have time to learn that by sort of having a having a different scales of difficulty without having a slider. There is an Elden Ring hard mode where, yeah, you just don't summon. You don't summon. You don't, <laughs> like, see what the bosses are weak to, maybe. You don't, like, you don't, like, use this talisman that buffs skills. And you just, you play it like you would Dark Souls 3, kind of. And then there's the easier mode where you can use like incredibly beefed up summons that they make easier than ever for you to get. And uh, you can actually make them stronger, which you couldn't do in past games. And those could draw aggro away. And I thought that was a really cool way of solving the problem. I do kind of, there are some bosses that I think are like way fucking overtuned in that game, but it's still like one of the more creative ways I've seen of like successfully dealing with that issue. I would say that the open world itself is also a big part of that. Um, when you play a souls game for the most part, you're very physically constrained and you, you can grind, but your exploration avenues are kind of limited in Elden ring. Um, you got a huge ass world. And so if you start getting real fucking bent because you can't beat something, get on your little horsey and ride away, like go, go ride somewhere else and like find some new shit and explore. And you can pretty much outrun almost everything. So you can spend a huge amount of time just kind of vibing and cruising around and like poking hornet's nests and running away. And I think that that honestly made a big difference because yeah, you can always kind of easy mode by gearing up by, you know, improving your summons, all that stuff. And so, yeah, when you get super mad at a boss, just walk away, (laughs) like literally get on your horse and ride and then come back later. It's okay. So it was a, a a shocking, like I didn't even think about how much of an impact it had until I was the guy getting pissed off. And I was the guy riding away on my horse to go have little adventures. What I think is interesting about like that design. And it's one of the like open, there's so many open world games. I mean, I guess that would be a giant triple a trend, like in and of itself. But, um, absolutely. Like, with other like from games, you like you said, you can grind, but it's often just fucking miserable. Yeah. Um, or like you technically can go to late game areas, like in Dark Souls One, even. But the reward, like 
you get either a very like singular reward that's a very specific thing. Like you can, if you go to uh, the catacombs in Dark Souls One, you can get if you make it all the way through at a very low level, you can get bonfire kindling and you can get more um, healing charges in your Estus flask. But that's it's sort of like a, a shitty reward for something that's incredibly hard to do that <laughs> early in the game. But Elden Ring, there's while it is, I guess, less linear. The role, the rewards you get for exploring are more defined. Like you, if you go into a higher, higher level region, yeah, you can you can fight like a field boss. You can get a bunch of runes. You can get like a weapon that completely changes your build. Pretty straightforward in a way that just you know wasn't there in the previous games. Uh, just we we keep talking about like these these open world games, and you know like I'm playing the the new Zelda right now, or it's like Red Dead Redemption Two. Like you mentioned these games where it's like this huge like almost like like a nation that you can explore, and like you know technology has made it so that like the hours it takes to complete the game are now you know could be in the in the hundreds of hours before you like complete the the main story or quest, whereas like. You know, you said like they, they try to avoid friction because they want to like sort of like ease you into it where it used to be because games are a lot shorter. It's like if you played it perfectly to go from start to finish, they had to make them psychotically hard. So the replayability of them would be such that you wouldn't just get bored with it. But I'm interested in, in like the, the concept of these open world games in which uh, the, the goal is not really to complete the story or to beat the game. But it is like you said, to just sort of exist in this parallel universe where you can just kind of hang out and vibe. And I'm wondering, like, when, you know, you're working on Fallout New Vegas, like, in creating these kind of parallel realities to our, to our, to our own, like, how do you, like I, like, I mean, Felix mentioned the card game that you created for Fallout New Vegas, which sort of, like, uh, sort of transfers into our own real world. But, like, what, what do you make of this, uh, this, this, this trend in entertainment, in all entertainment, but video games especially, to create sort of places that are not real where you can hang out and sort of live a parallel life. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, you know, it's sort of an aspect of, of fantasy, I guess, in a way, like for a long time, the idea in fantasy games or like role-playing games, let's say, was that you embody this person who, or being that comes from a humble, humble uh, beginnings and then be uh, kicks immense ass by the end. And that's a power fantasy. And that's still there. But then I think the more games became capable of capturing atmosphere and mood and tone in a way that was not necessarily hyper-realistic, but like enough to immerse people, um, then it became this uh, thing where it was more about the experience of just being in this place. And, you know, I think maybe in my mind, uh, within recent memory, like Skyrim is one of the games that does this the best in the sense where you can just float around and like do a little bit of content, a little bit of content in a dungeon here and a dungeon there. And there are tons and tons and tons of people who will have hundreds of hours in Skyrim and have never completed the critical path. And they just kind of like being in the world and going around. And it's frankly, it's a game that doesn't have a ton of uh, challenge in it. Like the combat's not particularly hard, um, but it has a very strong sense of mood and place. And People like, they just like kind of being in it. And, you know, um, you know, I think for a lot of people, it's, they like the gameplay aspect of it, but I think it's more that the gameplay loops kind of just put your brain, and this sounds like weird maybe, but it just puts your brain into a different state. Like I'm looking around, 
I see a landmark. I go towards it. I have a combat. I think about combat stuff. Now I'm looting. Now I'm overburdened. I go into my inventory. I bump some stuff out. I craft a thing. I enchant a thing. I'm out. Now I look for a landmark. I go to that. And so they just get into this weird state of kind of flowing from location to location and engaging in this loop of gameplay that is not super challenging, but it is mentally stimulating enough that it's not like you're just looking at a screensaver or in a walking simulator, but it's, it is kind of just putting your mind, like whatever stresses you have, you kind of just go into the space and chill out and enjoy that experience. And I think that's why a lot of people get into open world stuff is because they, they can kind of direct their own experience. Uh, another thing I'm interested in is like, you know, with technology now, like video game graphics, like if you had shown me what, uh, Elden Ring or Red Dead Redemption looked like when I was like 11 years old. I would like my eyes would have fallen out of my head. And now like there's there's sort of a fetish fetishization of like 60 frames a second. You know you got you can't be dropping any frames. It's like the perfect HD graphics. But at the same time, I think the demand for better and better graphics has created kind of a homogeneity in terms of the artistic design and look of games. And I'm just like for instance, like I think the interesting thing about Pentiment is that all the graphics look like illuminated manuscripts it's very like 2d like do you, do you think do you find that like uh the, the demand for higher and higher fidelity of graphics like robs something of the like artistic design and sort of feel and emotion of a story yes i do and i think that sometimes development teams fall into traps where it's kind of assumed that fidelity is the goal and there's not even really a discussion about stylization stylization of character design proportion lighting, stylization of rendering, um, it kind of all goes out the window because they're just like, how much can we simulate? How close can we get to uh, tricking the human eye into thinking they're looking at something that's like real? And for, on, on the one hand, uh, you're missing an opportunity to do a lot of really good decision-making about artistic choices. And I think the other thing is that it's phenomenally fucking expensive to do that. Like it is very, very expensive for teams to make art that hits that fidelity bar. Um, very few, like it, it is truly AAA stuff. Like if you want to do the highest end competitive graphics, it's phenomenally expensive. And if your team is not huge and you don't have a huge budget, it's, I would say unattainable. So I think it's, you know, I'm glad that we have indie games to kind of show us because that's where you see all the cool art direction in my opinion josh have you played like, that game norco i have not played it yet but i've seen it and it looks fucking incredible yeah it's it's very cool <laughs> i mean it's like it's like eight, it's like point and click and i guess like 8-bit graphics like pixelated but it's like the, the 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 level of detail and the look of the game is really impressive and it's because of that sort of it's more lo-fi aspects to it yeah i i I really love, I mean, Night in the Woods was kind of the first, the game that inspired the style of game that Pentiment became. And obviously, you know, Scott Benson, like that art style is very, very distinctive. Um, there are just, there are tons of games that I think where they know that there, there's no way that they can compete in terms of fidelity, but they're also not interested in that. Um, and of course, again, when you have a small audience and a relatively low investment of money, then you just want to find your niche. And with Pentiment, I was like, I want to find people that are into art history, <laughs> which is not necessarily a huge audience, but also it wasn't very expensive. So who cares? Um, and again, kind of going back to this idea of the AAA needing to hit the widest audience possible, when you make challenging art decisions, when you make art decisions that are polarizing, then people make frowny faces and some of them might say, I don't want to buy this game. 
And so I, I think, again, there's this tendency to err toward, well, you know, everyone, everyone's impressed by fidelity. So let's see if we can do that. And then, you know, very few people will not want to play it because we're not making a choice that might alienate people, let's say. Something that I think is like interesting that whenever there was like a new benchmark for graphics, whenever there's like a huge leap forward and they, they've reached this new standard, the direction that, um, you know, big studios seem to go in uh, a lot of the time is if we're at a new technological benchmark, then like the art direction of the game and just the look and feel of it, it should be as realistic as possible to show off like all the new things we can do, you know, like how doom three, like it, it ushered in a new standard of graphics, uh, like a lot of big games in 2004, 2005, but it, it caused them to take this franchise. That's, you know, it's on its face. Ridiculous. It's supposed to be, it's about a fucking space Marine going to hell to beat up Satan. Uh, it caused them to go, Oh, you should, you know, c- carry a flashlight and it should be more survival horror. It should feel more realistic. Your screen should shake and you should get dislocated when you get hit. And it, it like, there's nothing wrong with like trying to make something more realistic in and of itself, but it does. It is interesting because it sort of, it immediately goes away from one of the, from one of the interesting things about video games that, you know, you can make something that looks fantastical and unreal and is outside of most people's imaginations. Yeah. And I think that my hope, my hope as, uh, I don't know, maybe this is naive of me. Well, it is a hope is that as we kind of start bumping up against the limits of like, yeah, dude, we got it. That's pretty realistic. (laughs) I kind of of hope that we start seeing more people on bigger games. um, More teams kind of say, okay, like we've already established that we can do some impressive, very realistic looking stuff. Um, let's try some other things. Like let's make some kind of more, you know, triple A games that don't go for realism. They go for either stylized rendering or stylized proportions or, you know, whatever that, that stuff is. I think I've seen arcane kind of working in the, let's say double a triple a range where, um, cause their teams are not huge, but something like, uh, the dishonored games or death loop where there's more of a stylization to the characters. There's more of a, a decision to um, go for a vibe and a style rather than fidelity, because there's not, you know, the characters aren't super um, high resolution, high detailed. They're not going for that experience in arcane games. They're going for vibe and style and mood. And I think it's very effective. And so I hope, I hope that other games kind of take that lead. Yeah. I, we, we touched on it a little bit, but I mean, just as far as like immersion and, you know, making you feel like you as a player are part of the world and you're interacting with it, not just like as a player, but you know, you're really, you're really kind of in it. Your gameplay loops are part of the world. I mean, something like there being an in universe card game, like you have to learn. I mean, that's one of the best examples of that type of thing that goes way farther than like, yeah, realistic looking sweat. You know, we, 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 everyone has seen a sweat drop in real life. Hopefully everyone has held a flashlight. You're still aware you're in a game. I think like immersion, hopefully it's should be something more experiential. Uh, if I could return to just to the, the idea of these, <clears throat> these open world games that are kind of an alternate reality. 
I, I'm interested in the idea, like we, we something we talked about on the show before is like meta, like the metaverse, which is like it's funny, but it's I don't, I'm, I'm not really scared by it because the vibes are atrocious, and I don't think it'll like you know really usher in some new virtual reality just because of how shitty everything is. You will be but, legless. <laughs> you will be but, legless in the pod love it. with the bugs. <laughs> Deal with it. But but Josh, like I mean, are are you as a game designer, uh, perhaps like is, is there is there something disturbing about creating these alternate realities that are so alluring that like, especially in a world now where, you know, for better or worse, video games have become a way that people interact with one another, like, you know, through Twitch or discord or just like a massive, like online multiplaying, you know, just online play. And just like this kind of soporific effect of replacing reality with just like a, a more pleasant universe that you're in control of. Like, does it ever disturb you of like the idea that like this is we've made it like too easy to escape like the, the, the dystopian reality that we currently live in? Yeah, I mean, it does. It does weigh on my mind. Um, you know, these are I'm making things that are, you know, entertainment, but I understand they have other applications. And on the one hand, you know, anecdotally, you know, people have written to me with really honestly moving stories about how whatever fucking game, like a game I wouldn't have even expected, like Icewind Dale, my first game that I worked on, which is not a very serious game at all things considered. And they're like, Oh yeah, this got me through some super depressing phase of my life. And I'm like, fuck, like I'm glad, but I don't like, that's crazy. Like to me, I I just don't see how that is that meaningful, but yeah, people are dealing with a lot of crazy shit. Um, And so I understand that it's entertainment for, but for some people it does allow, it's a, it's a persistent distraction from something that is very, very difficult to deal with. Um, I think, yeah, there is also a danger of it. Be- and we've already seen, especially with MMOs, um, you know, like when they f- the first few waves of them started coming out, you started seeing people who just lived their whole life within that sphere. And even though there is a social reality there, there's a social network in the game. Uh, they basically were just neglecting everything outside of the game. And it's, to me, it's not about necessarily like physical versus virtual as much as disconnecting from (laughs) disconnecting from other networks of interaction with people. Um, you know, I do think that there is a danger of that, um, displacing our level of, um, our level of engagement with the world because yeah, it sucks. (laughs) Like it's, it's hard to read this shit day after day and understand that we're in it and feel some very often helpless um, or if not helpless, very demoralized about our ability to do anything about it. So, um, you know, whether that's, whether it's, it's drugs or movies, which I love or music or games and games are one that you can kind of continually just immerse yourself in. Yeah. I think there is a danger there and um, I hope I'm not contributing to that immensely um, I don't, I don't make games specifically to let people disconnect from the world. Um, but I know that sometimes how they're used. Maybe you should start. Yeah. I mean, if, if, it, <laughs> if, it, if it makes you, if it makes you feel any better, um, it does go both ways. I will say this, um, especially like, especially with role, role playing games for me and a lot of people, uh, like me. We had played a lot of role-playing games growing up, and we liked the feeling of our character getting more powerful. And then we were like, what if we could do that in real life? And then we found gyms, <laughs> which they invented in 2005, and we all started going. And nice. then, the, yeah, then we then we made quality builds in real life. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. 
Um, uh, Josh, Felix already mentioned um, this this list. Uh, GQ just put out this list of like the top hundred video games ever that you were a contributor to. Uh, you you have your you had you submitted your your top ten list of your, what do you think of the ten greatest video games of all time? I'm just wondering, like going through the going through the whole list, uh, did you did you find that there are any uh, glaring omissions, or were there anything that you felt that was uh, overrated? If I can get you to talk shit about any of your friends or competitors. <sighs> Um, I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff in there where I just kind of don't get it. Like, you know, games that, but they're games that classically I'm just kind of not into. And I guess maybe because I've been doing this long enough, I've kind of gotten over the fact that my tastes are just, they're not the taste of other people. And there's stuff that I really dig that other people don't. I mean, I do think that, and maybe it's the, a consequence of me being middle-aged, but, um, there's so much recency bias in the overall list. Uh, but then again, if you're pulling a lot of people who were too young to play older games, then you're going to get games that are all made in the last 10 years. So it did seem kind of uh, a little lopsided in that way. I mean, I, I have a fair number of games on my list that are from, you know, the 80s and 90s because I grew up playing video games then. Um, you know, Bard's Tale was like the first role playing game I ever played. And it's funny because there were a number of people in my mentions when I posted my list who thought I was referring to the new Bard's Tale game that came out like two or three years ago. They didn't, they had no idea that there was one from 1985, three, five. Um, and so it's, it's very old, but it's very foundational for me. I mean, it set me on my entire journey of like playing D and D and all the other like wizardry and all those old role-playing games. Um, I tried to, I tried to really dig back into the foundational stuff for my own upbringing um, but for a lot of people, like if you're asking someone who's 25, they're literally they're 20 years younger than me. So like, why would they have gone back and played that shit? Uh, so yeah, I think it's different from, and you know, you see a little bit of the, cause the thing is Sam who had, uh, you know, had the idea for it at GQ, he was kind of basing it off of the sight and sound, um, you know, the, the director's list for films, which I think in my recollection is a much broader spectrum of films from different time periods um, with a little bit of recency bias in there for mix. But um, it's also a lot easier for people to, let's say, watch and experience an older film than watch and experience an older game. Like I can go back and watch night of the hunter. And I'm like, this fucking rocks like right now um, asking someone like, go back and play Bard's tale from 1985. <laughs> like <laughs> nobody's going to do that. So uh, I get it. It's just, it's weird because the recency bias is probably the thing that bugs me the most. Well, uh, Felix, did you take a look at uh, Josh's list? We got here Splinter Cell Chaos Theory. I know you're a fan of that. Ninja Gaiden for, Ninja Gaiden for Xbox, Quake, Fallout, Journey, Half-Life 2, The Bard's Tale, Ultima 4, Elden Ring, and Hitman World of Assassination. Felix, do you have any overlap with uh, Josh here? Oh, a ton. A ton. I mean, like, it, you know, it's hard for me to think of, like, what is, like, my absolute favorite of all time. But, like, a, a ton of these would be there. Like, absolute chaos theory is if i had to pick a top three it's definitely in there it's like i i went back and played it uh recently i had to do a lot of uh i had to do a lot of i had to install linux on my steam deck something i <laughs> had forsworn myself from doing i had to learn how to do that but it was completely worth it just one of the most probably like the greatest stealth game ever made maybe i don't know absolutely yeah um Hitman World of Assassination is, I mean, I think of it kind of similar to how I think of uh, Phantom Pain, where it's like, despite trends in stealth, ga in stealth games and 
uh, just sort of dying out for the most part. The fact that like this got through, it is one of the mechanically like best stealth games that's ever existed just because it was made with a ton of attention and was made with the same like uh, not the same difficulty scale as the first few Hitman. Definitely not. It's it's I feel like you're able to do a lot more. You're able to get away with a little bit more. But still, it still feels like a stealth game in a way that, like, you know, Splinter Cell Conviction definitely was not. The only the only thing I'd, I I don't even know if I disagree. I just I might swap out Elden Ring for uh, Bloodborne or Dark Souls 1. But I mean, you kind of can play Elden Ring as you would play either of those games. I just I would just maybe put those other two there instead, just because of how overtuned I think some of the uh, bosses in Elden Ring are. But pro- I, my list is probably like 80 percent similar for me. It was the Elden Ring. Like, I, I think the earlier souls and, and Bloodborne are, are incredible for me. Elden Ring as a developer, it's so fucking big. I can't believe how fucking big that game is. And like every time more of the map opened up, I, in the same way that world of assassination feels like a culmination of IO working on Hitman games for like 25 years, Elden ring feels like, Hey, we worked on all these other games. Now check this shit out. And just, yeah, the scope of it is just unreal to me. Um, that's the thing as a developer, like playing it, I was just like, I can't imagine this. This is crazy. It's, I can, I can't believe it. I don't know the exact amount of time they worked on it, but it's, it turned out to be like way shorter than they thought. I don't know how the fuck they did that. It's, it's, yeah, I think it's just mastery of their, their tools and their pipeline and knowing, I mean, there's so much stuff that honestly you can look at and say, this is reused from this game. This is reused from this game. It doesn't matter. Like who gives a shit? Yeah. I, I love it when devs reuse stuff like that over and over and over and over again. There's a spider there's a spider that's in grounded that has been in like six of our games. Basically it just keeps getting like reskinned and slightly reanimated, but like, so I love it when devs do that, but it's so cool to look at Elden ring and just see them like mash, you know, like a decade of experience making similar types of games into the super game. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I mean, I feel the exact same way where it's, I, I don't know how to knock on them where like, yeah, there's a ton of Dark Souls 3 animations. There's a few Sekro animations. Like if you do the um <laughs> the Taker's Flame on the Blasphemous Blade, it's just the um fuck, I forgot what it's called in Sekro, but the the one combat art you do where it sort of regains posture for you. Mm-hmm. Just the overhead slash thing. Uh Use it if you got it. <laughs> yeah. But it's um to make a game that big and I don't remember any major technical problems playing it the first week it was out. Like uh, just networking stuff for me, it was yeah. just networking stuff, but oh well, uh, Josh, I mean, we, we talked about Elden Ring a lot, but like, are there any other, any other games over which you as a developer in like, let's say the last 10 years or so that came out that you really admired either as like a major step forward in the medium in terms of like storytelling or graphics or just like a new style of gameplay It's like, what's caught your attention recently? Yeah. Not to harp on this too much, but I would say the Hitman game specifically for how well designed the levels are. I would say it's worth looking at. It's hard because a lot of people are not super into stealth gameplay, but I wish I could get more, especially game developers to look at world of assassination and how they, how they use their levels and also how they reuse them. For me, it's um, they think so much about flow and all the ways that players can get into and out of places, all the ways that like different 
disguises overlap in areas, um, all the ways that tools can be used to create these dynamic experiences, but they still have scripted stories within them, which I think is really fascinating. And then, you know, every time they would do a content update, they would release stuff where it's like, hey, here's this level that you've already played in, but it's nighttime and we've completely changed the entire population and also kind of the rules of how you go through it and your objectives. And it really made like an entirely new, it made an entirely new mission out of it. Uh, and then they have this new freelancer mode, which is incredible because even the most sort of diehard Hitman veteran that has played these levels dozens and dozens of times um, still finds new and dynamic challenges in it. And a lot of that is due to just how the levels are designed. Um, and it goes back to that idea of it's kind of realistic, but it's not obsessed with high, you know, like it's not obsessed with high resolution characters and graphics and things like that, but it establishes a very realistic mood to it. And I just think that, um, yeah, it's one of those things where I feel like it's so good at level design. Um, also I think the arcane games, especially prey, the way that their spaces are designed and laid out and reused, um, is really striking. Um, you know, I think they're all, you know, uh, arcane is always known most, uh, first and foremost for immersive Sims, but I really felt like prey was the place where, uh, the level design and the layout and the inter interconnectivity of all the levels was really striking to me. So those are the big ones. And then, uh, yeah, I, I was really struck when I played gone or, um, well, both gone home. Um, and then also night in the woods, uh, especially for telling just more intimate stories and, uh, more personal stories and having night in the woods be a game where essentially you just, you run around and you vibe with your friends and you make a couple of choices, but you're really just kind of playing through an interactive story. It doesn't feel like a visual novel. Like it feels more involved and engaging than that. And then mixing in those little mini game things, like even as something as simple as like, you know, grabbing a slice of pizza or, you know, throwing, throwing fluorescent light bulbs and hitting with a baseball bat. Like there's such minor interactions, but they break up the experience enough that it doesn't feel just like you're playing through a novel. It felt more engaging than that, but I thought that was really striking. And, and so seeing other games like that, um, I thought was really cool. Well, uh, before, before we get before we get you out of here today, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that there'll be a new, a new AAA game to um, capture the world's imagination, uh, courtesy of our own Felix Biederman. Felix, I think you had a, a AAA games pitch that you'd like to share with Josh. All right, hit me. Yeah, so I, I've been... Um this is a concept I've been I've been formulating for over twenty years. So picture cool. a game that um, it's a bigger open world than than GTA Five. All right, stealth Good is start. better than Hitman than uh, Splinter Cell Chaos Theory. Love it. There, all the missions are procedurally generated. Uh, you have to be online, but there's no multiplayer. Forty percent of the game is uh, forced helplessness stealth missions that are in first person and are instant fail. And uh, it somehow takes both sides of Gamergate 10 years after the fact. <laughs> costs $120 million. And um, it will it will actually brick your hard drive on upon release. Sounds like a AAA game that could come out next year. Yeah, it's called um, Ultimatum. Um <laughs> Ultimatum? <laughs> Ultimatum. <-um. laughs> Ultimatum. <-um. laughs> yeah. Love it. Rolls well, off the I, tongue. I was thinking about like uh video games that I'd like to see. And if I could just I I I have two video game ideas I'd like to pitch. Uh the first one is sort of a 
like 2D like f- fighting game, sort of like a Dark Darkstalkers or really more like Marvel versus Capcom. But this is Deadwood versus Sopranos. When we finally get to decide oh, what is oh. the best TV show of all time in sort of fantastic like an anime style fighting game where you can like, ooh, well, Francis Walcott's straight razor attack. How will that stand up against <laughs> Richie April's hitting hitting you with a car? <laughs> that's one of his. That's the heavy attack. <laughs> That I would love to see. I actually, it's actually, so we, the first game crosser ever I've had where um, Andreas Mahler from Pentiment appeared in another game in Kulinati. We talked to the devs and they, they put it in their strategy game. And now I'm like, okay, this is just the start. When Andreas appears in a fighting game, when there's like a Microsoft, there's like an Xbox all-star fighting game. I want to see him there doing like painting moves. And uh, that will be truly the dream come true. Um, I just want to see one of my characters make it into a fighting game. Uh, his, fighting guess, st- his fighting style could be Protestant. Ooh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, you mentioned um, uh, novels. And then I guess the other idea I had for a video game was like similar to the, you know, uh, train conductor simulator, uh, truck driving simulators, sort of farming simulators. I'd like to see 19th century whaling simulators. So it's sort of like M- Moby Dick the game, but it's more just like less plot driven and more, you know, just sort of like what what are the actual like really detailed down to like tying the right knots, you know, uh, finding the right whales, killing them, processing their their blubber and spermaceti down into precious oil. I'd like to see whaling simulator. That would be fantastic. By the way, there is a game about whaling that is is kind of set up as a sequel to Moby Dick called Nantucket, which I actually had a lot of fun with. And you are basically just going out at your whaling vessel and you sail all over the world and it's kind of crazy. I really liked it. Um, but yeah, we need, I want not simulation. I want like not tying <laughs> to be a thing. That sounds cool. Get like super duper into it. That would be fantastic. Will, your, your first idea gave me an idea um, a shield tower defense game <laughs> where you have to, you have to build up the farm and you have to keep Aceveda from it, from being able to investigate you. <laughs> oh no. Glenn close is the hidden boss. We have to, <laughs> we have to enter her arena. Um, yeah. Like just sort of like, you know, just like incorporating like all IP together, you know, like, like I want, I want all the HBO shows to be able to be like, you know, you can fight off against each other, you know, like how, like Bodhi from The Wire versus, uh, I don't know, Nick Stahl Martin from Tucker Tuna from Dream On. <laughs> 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 Brian Benven. Uh, Actually, uh, what, fuck, I, I forgot to bring this up. Uh, did you catch that story about how Nintendo is going to like own this guy's entire life because he did a mod for one of their games? I hate be that, man. I fucking hate <laughs> that. Yeah. Um, I don't know all the details of that, but yeah, I've seen like, they've been super litigious. I mean, in general, they've been super litigious and they've been extra litigious in the lead up to Tears of the Kingdom coming out. Um, yeah, seems a little, little excessive (laughs) to put it mildly. I just like, I'm sure that new Zelda game is like incredible. I'm positive that it's, but like, I just, I cannot bring myself to it's, it's like supporting Metallica, you know? (laughs) I made all those great songs. They made all those great songs, but Lars Ulrich is like, oh, I've got, I've got to sue a thirteen-year-old to buy more tennis rackets. Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, uh, 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 this is good. This would be a good time now to to launch to launch my Saint Anger mod for uh, Tears of the Kingdom. It's basically like <laughs> Tears of the Kingdom, except you have a therapist talk to you for the whole game. They're like, oh, like uh, before before you cook this meal, let's have a band meeting. <laughs> all right, well. 
Uh, Josh, we'll let you go with that. Uh, Josh Sawyer, I want to thank you for hanging out and talking uh, video games with us. And uh, I would encourage everyone to go check out uh, Pentiment. Uh, Josh, do you have any, anything else you're working on? Anything else you want to want to share with the audience? Nope. I am just, uh, I'm the studio design director at Obsidian, so I'm just helping out on Avowed and Outer Worlds 2. And it'll probably be a while before you'll hear anything for a new game for me. Uh, but yeah, I really appreciated being able to come on the show after being badgered by my followers to go on Chapo for five plus years. <laughs> well, uh, and congratulations on Pentiment. Uh, Joshua, thanks yeah. so much for hanging out. Thank you so much. Till next time, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>